The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the curious story of how sushi became popular in America, plus what would happen to dogs if all of their humans disappeared. And in their latest stunt, Heinz says they've grown ketchup in Martian conditions. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So recently I talked about the evolution of Chinese food in America, particularly those paper takeout boxes, which it turns out are not Chinese at all, but evolved from oyster pails used in the northeastern U.S. Well, over the weekend, there was an incredible piece in the New York Times about how sushi became popular in America, and whoa, does it go places I wasn't expecting. So one thing to know off the bat is that sushi is not originally Japanese, although it has been there for over a millennium. But before that, it seems to have come from China or maybe somewhere else in Southeast Asia. It also used to be fermented and wasn't popular in all parts of Japan for a very long time. Sushi as we would recognize it today was mostly a post-World War II phenomenon in Japan, a combination of a booming economy, scientific innovations in food, and the spread of urban cuisines to the rest of the nation. But it wouldn't be until the 80s that sushi caught on in America. Enter Sun Myung Moon, a Korean man born in 1920 who claimed to basically be a messiah. He says that Jesus appeared to him on Easter Sunday as a teenager and gave him his marching orders for life. He went on to found the Unification Church, which, according to the Times, was a mix of Christianity, Buddhism, Confucianism, shamanism, sex magic, and, though this wasn't explicitly part of their belief system, shady business dealings. Though founded in Korea, it really took off in Japan, where a company called Happy World, staffed by religious sales representatives, made a ton of money selling fake cures to people. Basically, just imagine a lot of those MLM wellness influencers these days posting Bible quotes to sell you essential oils. But it really worked at the time in Japan. The church made enough money for Moon to move to America with a horde of Japanese followers, and the Times notes that the church's Japanese treasurer at the time arrived in America with a briefcase filled with $1.8 million. The church then set up a corporation in Washington, which received and managed the money flowing in from Japan. The company did a lot of different things, mostly financing Moon's whims, a ballet company, a chinchilla ranch in Northern California, anti-communist activism, including the right-wing newspaper The Washington Times. It also paid his legal bills, acted as an occasional shell company, and would go on to fund the company that would essentially bring sushi to America. Quoting the Times, Moon was a fervent fisherman who spent much of the 70s and 80s chasing giant tuna and preaching about the spiritual potential of the oceans, which he saw as the origin of an entire ocean providence, a vision capacious enough to include both arcane theological projects and a vertically integrated business empire. It was about more than making money. He was the future food messiah who would solve the food problems of the world. In a way, he said, I view tuna as an offering. 
And it was more than just an idea. By the time follower Takeshi Ishiro and the other fish pioneers listened in at the ballroom, Unification Church International had already poured more than $10 million into shipyards and seafood operations on every coast of the continental United States, including a processing plant in Alaska. It would go on to spend tens of millions more, but someone needed to sell the catch. Moon's idea, the pioneers say, was for them to peddle it door-to-door from refrigerated vans and to proselytize at the same time. End quote. So Moon gathered a bunch of his identically dressed followers at the New Yorker Hotel in 1980, gave them their instructions and a $100 bill each, married thousands of them, in particular conducting some marriages across nationalities so immigrants could stay in the U.S., and then they were randomly assigned to each of the 50 states to go forth and preach the good word and sell fish. The door-to-door sales, though pretty tough initially, did soon grow to retail and wholesale operations, and even led to the opening of about 100 sushi restaurants in unlikely towns like Little Rock and Omaha. And eventually, it all turned into True World Foods, pretty much America's only nationwide fresh seafood company, selling fish, shellfish, eel sauce, mochi, knives, and more in 17 states and 6 countries. It is a go-to supplier for sushi chefs, and the current president, Robert Blue told the New York Times that in a lot of cities, True World Foods sells to 70 to 80 percent of those cities' mid-range and high-end sushi restaurants. But going back to the 80s, it was a time when trends turned towards healthful eating, and perceived Japanese culture as well as actual Japanese brands like Toyota and Casio were becoming very popular. So that helped True World Foods build up their company at the start. Through the mid-80s to mid-90s, sushi restaurants exploded across the U.S., and as the Times puts it, all those new sushi chefs needed suppliers, and the Disciples of Moon were ready and waiting in the wings to provide. And for years, the church and Moon himself was still highly involved with the company, leading it in decisions that sometimes chose church values over traditional business practices. The company and the church have had a fair amount of controversy over the years, with things really coming to a head just before and just after Moon's death in 2012. There's kind of a schism now between followers of Moon's widow and followers of his son. The company is mired in court battles at the moment, and the future is a bit uncertain. But the legacy of the Unification Church and True World Foods is not. I'll leave you with this from the New York Times, quote, Faith, we all know, is complicated. It can start wars or artistic movements, define our most public acts or most private thoughts. It can also live in the marrow of a world-altering corporation, bringing Japanese delicacies to Nebraska, or influencing the sushi you ate yesterday, which may itself be edible proof that people and values at the edges of our culture have moved closer to the center, but not in the way we expect. For True World Foods, this deep entanglement of business and religion would confer both hidden advantages and a singular vulnerability. It would make possible the sushi thing, as Yoshiro once called it, even as it laid the foundation for a bitter Moon family feud, and a lawsuit whose consequences for tuna and salmon are still unfolding. At times comically, at times tragically, Moon's followers have expanded our understandings of what faith can and cannot do. Their greatest achievement would always be linked to their greatest limitations. After all, they set out to build God's kingdom and somehow ended up selling America's raw fish.
Imagine if your favorite casino came with an undo button. That's exactly what you get with FanDuel Casino's Play It Again. Get up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. Play your favorite table games in hundreds of slots for real cash. And see for yourself why FanDuel Casino is the number one rated online casino app. Explore daily and weekly promotions. Play with live dealers. And if you ever have a question, our best-in-class customer support team is here to help 24-7. Sign up for FanDuel Casino at FanDuel.com PA3 today and play it again with up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. 21 plus and present in Pennsylvania. Must not have previously placed any wager on FanDuel Sportsbook, FanDuel Casino, Betfair Casino, Mohegan Sun Casino, or Stardust Casino. Refund issued as non-withdrawable casino online site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. Humans have domesticated dogs from wolves over thousands of years. With the growing number of pet dogs that I see in strollers and taking anxiety medicine, it's a valid question to ask whether modern-day dogs could, today, survive without us. And if they could, would they go back to being wild? What might they evolve over time without us there to interfere? In their new book, A Dog's World, Mark Beckoff and Jessica Pierce dive into just those questions, and an adapted excerpt from Pierce published yesterday on Eon gives us a taste of their theories. Now, the first thing to note is that of the 1 billion dogs on the planet right now, only about 20% are pets. The rest are, as Pierce describes them, quote, free-ranging, an umbrella term that includes village, street, unconfined community, and feral dogs, end quote. So it turns out that the vast majority of the dogs are already living without human caretakers in a human-centered home, though they are still living among humans and all the ways that we pesky humans impact other species and ecosystems. And one of the ways that most impacts dogs, even the roaming ones, is food. Food scraps, garbage, these are all resources that free-range dogs rely on and would be gone without humans there. The good news is that dogs are dietary generalists, according to Pierce. They could survive on plants, berries, small mammals, just about anything, but they'd have to adopt those survival skills at first, and it's likely that the vast majority of dogs who lived as pets might simply die off, or at least struggle much more than their free-range counterparts. But, quoting Pierce, After some rough years, dogs would adapt to life on their own. Dogs retain many of the traits and behaviors of their wild relatives, such as wolves, coyotes, and jackals. They've not forgotten how to forage, hunt, find mates, raise young, get along in groups, and defend themselves. Those skills would be put back to work. End quote. And Pierce says, short of the disappearance of humans being due to catastrophic climate events that would also affect the canines' livelihoods, there's no reason dogs wouldn't adapt to be able to survive without us humans. But what changes might take place in dogs without us there to interfere? Now first, some background on the evolution of dogs up to our present reality. Quoting again, The origin of modern dogs is still hotly contested among biologists, paleontologists, and anthropologists, but the general contours are in place. Dogs and humans have lived in close association for at least 15,000 years, and perhaps as many as 40,000 years or longer. The only candid species to have undergone domestication, dogs were also the first animals to be domesticated, and were likely the only animal to have been domesticated by hunter-gatherers, with other animals being domesticated after the development of agriculture. Dogs are descended from wolves, and although dogs are genetically extremely close to wolves, sharing all but 0.2% of mitochondrial DNA, they are most certainly quite different in both appearance and behavior, and one species can happily share your living room couch, the other will likely likely refuse such an invitation and be distinctly uncomfortable in your presence, and you in theirs. 
This domestication process has strongly shaped the evolutionary trajectory of dogs up to this point. It has also shaped the evolutionary trajectory of humans. The phenotypic profile of dogs, their morphology, physiology, behavior, has been deliberately shaped by humans through purposeful breeding. Alongside deliberate selection by humans for particular traits such as friendliness and attraction to novelty, there has also been indirect selection of other unintended traits, or what geneticists call hitchhikers. Direct selection for hypersociality, for example, introduced other traits, such as changes in pigmentation, spotted fur or white patches, floppy ears and curly tails, none of which are seen in the wild relatives of dogs. In other words, the idea that humans have created dogs is an illusion. We have splashed around in the dog gene pool, but the broader ripples from our splashes extend well beyond our conscious control or even our understanding. Indeed, the ethologist Pierre Jensen and his colleagues describe dog domestication as the largest, albeit unconscious, biological and genetic experiment in history. End quote. But without us there influencing their genetics, how would natural selection play out? Well, it wouldn't go backwards. They wouldn't just revert to being wolves, although it could look like that as they adapt to more feral-seeming survival skills. One interesting thing that Pierce brings up is that now that all dogs will be dependent on whatever plants and animals are around them for food, that will necessarily influence how dogs in different locations and environments evolve over time, perhaps even creating distinct species from one another. Which, honestly, it sometimes already seems like there are, since dogs are, as Pierce says, the most morphologically diverse mammalian species on the planet. But in a post-human world, the differences could be even more stark. Quoting again, To take just one example, the shape and size of ears will represent a set of trade-offs reflective of the competing demands of climate, geography, and feeding ecology, among other things. Bigger ears may pick up sounds better than smaller ears and would aid dogs in locating prey, but they might also be problematic in very cold temperatures because there's more surface area for heat loss. In cold climates, smaller ears and slightly less acute hearing might be worth the trade-off for protection against the cold. End quote. There are also current traits of dogs that serve no functional purpose or even inhibit important survival skills in the wild. Things like curly tails that prevent inter-dog communication, and the extremely short limbs and lack of snout that you see on some dogs today. Some traits that humans have bred dogs for over the years in order for them to be helpful to humans, like friendliness and sociability, might help dogs have an edge over other animals in the wild, but they might also die out over time as dogs adapt to traits that are more helpful among each other and have no use in a world not run by humans. Mating and social organizations would also be interesting without humans facilitating or in the way. Packs might become more important or might not, but enhanced communication and conflict resolution skills certainly will be, and this could evolve greater cognitive skills and emotional intelligence over time. Pierce and her co-author also produced a list of things dogs have to gain in a post-human world. Some highlights include the freedom of physical movement and liberation from experimentation, forced breeding, surgical modifications, and captivity, freedom to mate, socialize, and explore as they please, no more fear of punishment from humans and ability to engage in their full range of natural behaviors and possibly even improved nutrition, though again that depends on their exact environment. On the flip side, they won't have access to the positive sides of medical care and the benefits of human-driven science on diseases, parasites, and general canine health. They'll be on their own for everything. 
And even though I'm amending the lists here, the gains column originally was still way longer than the losses, so maybe dogs would be better off without us. But Pierce and Bekov's point is not that we should free all dogs to be on their own or off all humans Thanos style, but rather that we should use this thought experiment to think about the ways in which we can improve the lives of dogs now, while we're both still here. How can it help us realize what they need and what they don't to live to their fullest, happiest potential? Fresh off their tomato blood Halloween costume stunt, Heinz has just announced that they have made a ketchup produced from tomatoes grown in similar soil conditions to Mars, and could therefore, theoretically, be made on Mars itself. Quoting Quartz, The experiment was conceptualized by Heinz Tomato Masters, seven experts on ketchup tomatoes two years ago. A team of 14 astrobiologists worked for nine months at a lab called The Red House at the Aldrin Space Institute, Florida Tech, growing tomatoes in a simulated environment with temperatures and water conditions similar to the red planet. Mars is not nearly as habitable as Earth. It's 50 degrees Celsius colder on average, and the air is mostly carbon dioxide. The sunlight's intensity is less than half of Earth's, and the gravitational pull is a third. Moreover, the arid soil not only lacks nutrients, it's also laced with nasty chemicals called perchlorates, which would have to be chemically removed for plants to grow there, according to Paul Sokoloff, a botanist at the Canadian Museum of Nature, who was on Crew 143 of the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah, the largest and longest-running Mars simulator on Earth. But scientists have found that artificial light sources, coupled with fertilizing the soil and leaching out the toxins, can make for a fertile environment. In fact, some shorter studies have already seen success growing quinoa, peas, rocket, barley, onions, and more on Martian soil in a few months. Apparently, the kale even tastes better. A 2014 study showed that tomatoes, wheat, cress, and mustard leaves grew particularly well, even flowering and producing seeds, in simulated Martian soil for 50 days without any fertilizers. End quote. And so, the tomatoes at the Red House at the Aldrin Space Institute were grown and officially passed Heinz's rigorous quality and taste standards to be used in their ketchup. But Heinz Ketchup Mars Edition, with a Z, won't be hitting store shelves anytime soon. The team of scientists who worked on it, as well as former NASA astronaut Mike Massimino, will be sampling the experimental sauce, but that is about it for now. It does seem to be a bit more experiment than gimmick, which is cool. In the promo video, the company said, quote, If we can grow on Mars soil, we can grow in more places on Earth. Which is the sentiment behind a lot of experiments happening in or in relation to space at the moment, investigating how things grow or react to extreme conditions in space as extreme conditions become more common on Earth due to the climate emergency. But in other weird brand news, Arby's is making vodka now? In partnership with the Tattersall Distillery and Surdix Distributor, both in Minneapolis, Arby's is launching a French fry-flavored vodka next week. Their chief marketing officer, Patrick Schwing, said, quote, Though we've mastered the art of drive through fries, we wanted to take it one step further by making them 80-proof. Being a potato-based liquor, this limited-edition vodka is infused with crinkle and curly fry flavor, so Arby's fans who are of legal drinking age can responsibly enjoy our menu from bag to bottle. End quote. 
Potato-based vodkas are nothing new, but I do wonder how the grease and spice flavors will come off in that vodka. But if you want to get your hands on a bottle, they'll be doing two drops, one on November 18th and one on November 22nd. It's $60 a bottle, and Arby says supplies are extremely limited, but check that link in the show notes to go to the website. So there you go. Arby's Vodka and Heinz Mars Ketchup. Welcome to 2021. One quick note before I go, we are taking the day off tomorrow in observance of Veterans Day, so there will be no show tomorrow, but I will be back on Friday to get you one more show before the weekend. So that is it for now. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Friday. Summer camp is a magic place where kids discover who they are because they have the freedom to explore on their own. Why Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is a sleepaway camp in the heart of Idaho's wilderness. Each summer, campers make friends, build new skills, and learn to love the outdoors through activities like canoeing, archery, zip lining, rock climbing, campfires, and more. Registration for Why Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is open. Financial assistance is available. Learn more at whycampidaho.org.